will invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. Luke chapter 6, 17 through 26. Well, this passage begins with Jesus coming down from the mountain. If you recall from last week, it was this mountain that the Lord had called his 12 apostles. He called from this, this mass, massive group of disciples, 12 men, to continue his mission once he's done, these 12 apostles. And now he's coming down from this mountain, and there's this group of people made up of disciples, apostles, and just a generic group of individuals who are wanting to hear him teach, wanting to be healed of, of their diseases. And there's a lot of similarities between the, the rest of chapter 6 here, which is oftentimes called the Sermon on the Plains, Jesus' Sermon on the Plains, as he, in verse 17, is, goes down to this level place, this plateau of sorts. A lot of similarities with this section and the Sermon on the Mount, which we see in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. And these are likely different occasions, different events, but Jesus is reusing material. Like many teachers, they, they use the material that they teach, they oftentimes use more than once. And I think this is what Jesus is doing as we compare the Sermon on the Mount with his teaching here in the rest of, of chapter 6. So I'd ask you to turn your attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, and who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May our Lord write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, everything that we do in life, I believe, is orientated towards one main goal. It's this goal of achieving the state of blessedness or, or happiness. We all are seeking this goal. Not only our conscious decisions that we make throughout our life, but especially in our unconscious or subconscious decisions. The many 
many decisions that we make on autopilot throughout our days, our internal motivations that we might not even be aware of throughout our days and weeks. And the marketing in our culture capitalizes on this. When we consume media and advertisements in this culture, we are catechized, as it were, that the state of blessedness that we should be pursuing looks like youthfulness, beauty, wealth, pleasure. The list could go on. And oftentimes, we, be, we begin to take upon ourselves this vision of the good life, this vision of the ideal state of blessedness. And we begin to make our decisions based on this vision of the good life. So this is an important topic to turn our attention to. What conception of the blessed life is orientating the decisions we make? Well, Jesus here is addressing this very issue. He's showing us how we, as the people of God, are blessed. He's instructing us, defining for us that state of, of true blessedness or, or happiness. And we see this particularly in that section which should be printed in your Bible. It's called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. We see this in Matthew chapter 5. We see this in, here in Luke chapter 6. These so-called blessing statements that Jesus puts forth upon his, his disciples. And you'll see that these beatitudes are paradoxical. Not, that, not what we would expect after we read those, those first words, blessed. What comes after, blessed are the poor, blessed are, are those who are hungry, who, who weep, is paradoxical. We don't equate those things with a state of blessedness. And those corresponding woes which you see afterwards are also paradoxical. Woe to those who are rich, who are satisfied, who laugh. They don't seem to go together. A state of woe and a state of, of wealth and satisfaction and, and laughing. So what is a beatitude? These blessed statements that Jesus puts forth upon his people. Oftentimes when we read these, we, I think we intuitively read them as exhortations. Be poor, mourn, hunger for righteousness, and then you will achieve the state of blessedness. We read them as exhortations. But that's not at all what Jesus is doing here. These are blessings that our Lord is proclaiming upon his people. That's true of them already. His disciples already have that which makes them blessed. So we can find other passages in Scripture which exhort us to do some of these very same things. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. It's like a royal king coming in the presence of his subjects and declaring them to be blessed presently for what's already theirs. So if you're trusting in Christ this evening, these blessings are for you. These blessings are instructing you how you have attained this state of blessedness. And you'll see that Jesus declares four beatitudes, four beatitudes in, in this passage, and then he, he has four corresponding woes. So four beatitudes and four corresponding woes. And these four beatitudes, these four woes, are, are markers, as it were, defining for us both where blessedness is found and where blessedness is not found. 
And this evening I would like to focus our attention just on this first beatitude and its corresponding woe as we consider where the blessed, blessed life is found. So if you look with me at verse 20, Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. Now this is a very striking statement. If Jesus' feasting practices, which we uh, recently considered, if Jesus' Sabbath observances, which we recently considered, hadn't raised eyebrows, this would. Blessed are the poor. When we compare this beatitude, or when we consider it in light of the Old Testament, this is a great reversal. Because when you read the Old Testament, to be poor, whether it be economically poor or just circumstantially poor, life is hard, suffering, affliction. That was not a state of blessedness. It was generally an indicator of God's judgment, his curse upon his people. When you consider the nation of Israel, the history of the nation of Israel, and those times when their cattle died, the crops failed, the, the barns were empty, and foreign nations plundered their resources. Why did that happen? Usually it was because of their disobedience. It was because they forsook the Lord their God. And it was God's just judgment upon them. We see this in, in the covenant that God made with Moses. If they're faithful, it will go well in the land. But if they're disobedient, then things will be hard. Life will be hard. So this beatitude, this beatitude of Jesus, blessed are the poor, would have completely cut against the grain of the disciples' basic intuition. Not only because of this Old Testament context, but also because of their own expectations for the Messiah. I've alluded, this, alluded to this before, but the disciples were expecting this Messiah, King Jesus, to come in and bring an earthly kingdom. To set up this earthly kingdom with this earthly throne in Jerusalem, and to reign and renew this, this empire that would bring the Jews out of the tyranny of the Romans. There would be outward power and glory and likely wealth that came with it. And the disciples, the, especially the apostles, being the right-hand men of Jesus, likely would have shared quite a bit in that power, wealth, and glory. In fact, a few chapters from now, in Luke chapter 9, you probably recall this, this event where the disciples themselves were arguing who among them is the greatest. They were thinking through the lens of earthly power, prestige, and, and wealth. You know, these apostles, they, they themselves weren't rolling in the cash. I mean, they probably weren't in extreme poverty, but they likely weren't wealthy. Now, Levi, he was a tax collector, so he would have been wealthy, but he left that practice. He left that, that source of income, and now he's following Jesus. So I'm sure they were taken aback as they hear this beatitude, blessed are the poor? Wait a second, Jesus. You're saying we're blessed now? No, we want you to hold off on that. We're expecting you to declare us blessed once you institute this kingdom. And we are reigning in Jerusalem, and Caesar's bowing before us. That's when we want this beatitude pronounced upon us. This goes against our natural instincts. Blessed are 
the poor. Blessed are you even when the bank account is lower than you would like it to be. Even when life is hard. Blessed are the poor. I do think Jesus has in mind this the state of, of literal poverty, whether it be economically or just circumstantially. Right? Life is hard. But Jesus is saying much, much more in this beatitude than merely a, a, a state of circumstances. I believe he's playing on the literal and the figurative here. So he's wanting us to understand that this literal state of poverty points to being figuratively poor, poor in spirit. Because at the end of the day, our circumstances, our bank account, don't, does, does not influence our membership in the kingdom of God. So the literal points to the figurative. The literal points to the figurative. And this is what Matthew, in the corresponding beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Matthew makes this explicit. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The state of literal, circumstantial poverty points to a certain posture of the soul that Jesus wants his people to embody. So let's dwell a few more moments on what, what it means to be literally poor. You're destitute. You're needy. Dependent. Dependent upon others. You have low social capital. That is, you don't have a community and friends and family to lean upon. You're, you're dependent. Oftentimes, there isn't really people in your life to be dependent upon. We're beggars, right? Beggars. And this is a great description of the posture of, the, of, of soul that we are called to have before a holy God. To be poor in spirit, to have a, a poverty of the soul, as it were, is a true, to have a true recognition of who we are in light of a holy and perfect and righteous God. It's to recognize that we bring absolutely nothing to the table. We're destitute, we're naked, we're homeless, as it were. Martin Luther, it's alleged that some of the, the last words he said before he died was, we are beggars, this is true. We are beggars, this is true. What he was getting at is this poverty of the soul, this poverty of the spirit that every Christian is to imbibe. Before God, that's all we can boast of. We are beggars. We are beggars. And this is exactly the heart of what faith is. I want to know, well, what is faith? What's, what's the very core of saving faith? It's a poverty of, of the soul. It's a recognition that we bring absolutely nothing to the table and we are beggars before God. We have no ground to stand on. And this, I believe, is the most important reference of Jesus' beatitude here. When he says, blessed are the poor, he's ultimately wanting us to get to the, the, the point where we, we have this posture of the soul. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. As I said, Jesus, I think, is playing on the literal and the figurative. And oftentimes, 
the Spirit of God can use our circumstances, especially circumstances that are less than ideal, whether it be economic hardships or just circumstantial hardships, to help us to condition our souls, as it were, so that we would embody this posture of the soul. I believe that's one of the reasons why James can say, count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Literal hardship can humble us. Oftentimes it does do that. It creates in us this, this, this poverty of the Spirit. So blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. Well, why exactly is it blessed to be poor? I noted that trials can be a blessing as it conditions us to have this posture of the soul. But why do we even need this posture of the soul? Why is he saying, blessed are the poor? I've hinted at this. But to make it more explicit, listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? You know this. That though he was rich, for your, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Paul is explaining the gospel here for us in economic language. The same language of this beatitude. He's saying, you know Jesus, he who existed in the very essence of God himself, he was, he was completely rich. And even as he took upon a human nature, he was righteous and holy and blameless. Yet he willingly came to this earth, suffered and died, took upon himself our debts, our poverty as it were, so that we might inherit the wealth of his riches. And the way in which we access this benefit is by recognizing that we are beggars, that we are poor in spirit. It's when we recognize that, when we give over to, to Christ the debt, our debts, the debts in which we owe to, to the holiness of God, our sin, and agree and receive by faith his riches, his merits, his good works, which are credited to us. And one aspect of this wealth, this inheritance that we have because of Christ, is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And that's what we see in the second half of, of that beatitude. We are recipients of, of a kingdom, members of a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus, he, you know, he receives children into his arms, and he says, one must become like a child right, to enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus is doing here is, he's not just saying that children are, should be part of the, the covenant people of God, the church. But he's also telling us that we need to become like children. We need to have that posture of a child. Or we need to be poor in spirit to come into the kingdom. And you think about a child, talk about someone who's poor on them, in themselves. <laughs> They're completely dependent upon their parents for everything. We are to be poor in spirit to receive this, this inheritance. And notice the, the present tense reality where Jesus says, for yours is the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of God. There is a, a, a present and a future reality to the kingdom. And oftentimes we think of the future reality 
We lose sight of that is ours now. We are citizens and members of this kingdom now through the Spirit. It's sort of like building a house where you have a house under construction, but you're not living in it yet. It's not been consummated, right? It hasn't been finished and, and no one's moved in yet. Or you think of getting engaged and then actually being married. It's an analogy with the kingdom. Where it's, it's, it's begun, it's done, but yet it's not been consummated. But we are members of the kingdom now. The kingdom has dawned as the Spirit is giving us new life within our hearts. As, as we gather together with other brothers and sisters in the church of Jesus Christ, which is expanding and has been expanding since Christ instituted it 2,000 years ago. The, pre- the kingdom is ours. We are part of it. So the reason Jesus can say, blessed are the poor, the reason why Jesus can tell people who are literally poor, people whose life is, is actually very, very hard, the reason he can declare them to be blessed is because their blessedness does not, is not tied to their circumstances of their life, to their bank account. It's tied to the fact they're members of this new creation, members of the kingdom of God, inheritors of the wealth and riches of Christ. There's nothing inherently blessed about being literally poor. That's not Jesus' point. He's saying it's not tied to your circumstances. You can be blessed no matter what you're going through in this life because our blessedness resides in our membership in the kingdom of God. So brothers and sisters, If you are this evening trusting in Christ, then even if your circumstances are dire, even if the bank account is lower than you would wish, even if life's thrown you a curveball, it's difficult, it's hard, trials seem to keep coming your way, you can know that this beatitude is for you, despite the circumstances of your life. Jesus is saying, you are blessed because you are a member of my kingdom. You have inherited the riches of Christ. You you have worth, you have meaning, you have an identity, you are loved, and nothing that life throws your way can take that away from you. It's yours. Blessed are the poor. Well, Jesus also tells us where blessedness is not found. Verse 24, Jesus uh, gives this corresponding woe. He says, but woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are rich. Again, paradoxical. Woe to you who are rich. And this word woe is not a word that we oftentimes use in our, our day and age, but it, it's referring to a warning, a warning of a, a pain, displeasure that accompanies a certain state. It's the opposite of blessedness, this state of cursedness. Woe to the rich. Now immediately, I think this serves as a caution to us as Christians. Every material gift that we have in this life, literal wealth and riches, they're all a blessing from God. There's nothing inherently evil about material blessings or, or wealth. In fact, it's, it's actually a very good thing. We are creatures made in the image of God and called to exercise dominion over this earth, which looks like 
partaking, becoming part owners of this creation as we use our own intellect and energy and creativity as image bearers of God. These are blessings from God. However, the warning that comes to us is these blessings, these material blessings, wealth, they're common, common blessings. Common meaning God bestows upon God bestows these, uh, these things upon all people without discrimination. You know, he doesn't say to the church, okay, you're going to be very, very blessed in an earthly way. You're going to be very wealthy compared to unbelievers. God doesn't do that. These are common, common blessings he bestows upon all creatures who are made in his image. So it's very, we have to be very, very uh, keen not to equate our faith and our growth in faith with an expectation that we should be blessed materially. We should be blessed with more and more wealth, as if God has given his church extra promises that they will be wealthier than everybody else. Right? That's the prosperity gospel. We don't have those promises as believers. There's no indication from Scripture that there's a correlation with growth in faith, with growth in, in material blessings. No, those are common blessings. So I think that serves as a, a warning for us. A warning for us not to equate our wealth, wealth and piety, wealth and, and faith. But Jesus here is, is playing on the literal and the figurative as well. He says, woe to the rich, woe to the rich. And what does it mean to be literally rich? Well, you have a level of self-sufficiency, independence. Right? You're not dependent upon others economically, financially. Certain temptations that come with that state, as there are temptations with every state. Temptations towards, towards pride. Temptations towards setting our hope upon our riches. But again, Jesus ultimately is not condemning a certain economic state here. He's, the literal is meant to lead us to the figurative. He's condemning this, this posture of the soul, this haughtiness of the heart. That is, he's condemning being rich in spirit. So what does it mean to be rich in spirit? Well, it means to be self-sufficient. As we compare ourselves to God, as we think of our relationship with a holy and triune God, it's to be independent, autonomous, pridefully independent. C.S. Lewis talked about how pride is at the heart of all rebellion against God. That's what it means to be rich in spirit. To be poor in spirit, to be a beggar, to be rich in spirit is to be pridefully Rebelling against God. So Jesus here is warning, warning us all, not to be rich in spirit. At the end of the day, what is or isn't in one's bank account does not decide one's eternal destiny. One can be literally poor and rich in spirit. One can be literally wealthy and poor in spirit. Jesus is pointing us ultimately to the figurative. But again, the literal can create unique temptations for our hearts and our souls. As I said, to be literally poor is oftentimes used by the Spirit to produce in us a humility, a poverty of the soul. Well, so too, when we experience blessings, might be economically, might just be circumstantially. Life seems to be going pretty, uh, pretty well. The devil can oftentimes use that to create in us a haughtiness of spirit. 
This subtle posture of the soul whereby we, we start to forget we're, that we're not beggars, that we are somewhat independent. So we need to be careful, be on guard to constantly be fostering this posture of the soul which the Lord blesses in his people. And Jesus concludes this woe by by explaining why exactly it's such a woeful state. And he says, for you have received your consolation. If one's equating the state of blessedness with, with circumstantial economic prosperity, what you see is what you got. Let's eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. There's no hope beyond this world. All that person has is a treasure that will be one day eaten up by moth and dust and pass away. So brothers and sisters, Jesus here is instructing us that true blessedness does not lie ultimately in our circumstances, does not lie in our bank account, but true blessedness resides in the fact that we are the inheritors of the wealth of Christ and are members of the kingdom of God.